0: you and my
1: this <laughs> is not let me of nothing i just laugh I'll never remember which I'll never remember which one it's in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kim? yeah. yeah. Then, then you have I
2: just don't know. I don't
3: know. Yeah.
1: I, just, I, don't I don't know. In I I <laughs>
0: You better go back and check and
4: see
0: if you can hear it. Can you hear? Is it coming through really good? I'm just gonna turn it off for a second to see if you have it for sure, okay? It's on now. We're good? Okay.
3: Good morning. Good
4: morning.
3: Sorry we're late. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, verse 15. Tonight begins the new video series, 6 p.m. Finger foods as usual. Choir tonight at 5. Let you double check? Okay. Uh, prayer meeting Wednesday, 7. Andrea's number, which is sometimes working. And <laughs> <laughs> thank you for your faithful giving. Join us next Sunday, December the 1st. December the 1st. Wow. wow. A... After communion service, in a baking and decorating cookies uh, for gift for our local police and fire departments. Bring your own. Cookies or dough and trays to cook. Church will provide icing and decorations. Sign up on the gather board. That's right outside of this door. And bring soups uh, for us to lunch together. Um, again, sign up sheet. And um, I suppose that's pretty well, in, pretty well in place. Suggestions are listed. We've got a new ax and facts. It's the one with the raccoon on it make use of that. All right, anything else? Oh, yeah.
1: There's oh, a, was... um, a yes. box out here, the continuation of the purses with a purpose. Oh, I, I okay. I have a list of uh, more stuff that we need, but I can't remember. I okay,
3: got it. all right. Boxes out in the foyer for pur- purses with a purpose. That's hard for me to say. Um, our scripture for meditation this morning Is taken from First John chapter 2, read 15 through 28. Stand with me, and we'll open with prayer. George, would you open? Thanks.
1: Father, how we praise you and thank you today that we are able to gather in your name, and we especially, Lord, anticipate your blessing and your presence among us. We pray for uh, those who have gathered, and we ask, Lord, that would open our hearts and minds to hear your word. We pray for
0: Pastor to have strength and power and confidence that as he preaches, that the word of God would go forth and souls would be saved. We do ask, Lord, for thy blessing upon your
4: people
1: and this place. Help us, Lord, to serve you and honor you in all that we do and say. We ask this in Jesus' precious name, Lord. amen. Amen. Take your red Trinity hymnal and turn to number, sorry, uh, 283, 283 in the red hymnal, 283. Sorry, I closed it already. Two hundred and eighty-one in the same hymnal, just one page for those of you who didn't close your books. I know that my Redeemer lives. Do you have a reason for this hymn this morning? Is there a reason that goes along with the hymn this morning? Convenience and the very great. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Two eight one.
0: I'm not sure we know the two, so I should pray for All
1: right. Jared's going to play through it once because he's not sure. If he doesn't know it, then I definitely don't know it.
3: morning comes from Genesis 12 and we'll be reading verses 10 through 20.
2: there was a famine in the land and abram went down to egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe as he was about to enter in egypt he said to his wife sarai i know what a beautiful woman you are when the egyptians see you they will say this is his wife then they will kill me but will let you live say you are my sister Men servants and maid servants and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. Father, may you bless the reading of this holy inspired scripture. In the name of Christ, amen.
1: Take your brown handles this time and turn to number 539. 539 in the brown.
0: scripture text is found in Genesis chapter 12. In our last study, we were able to see the truly pilgrim aspect of Abraham and Sarah's life as together they scoped out the boundaries that God had laid out for them, and then with each construction of an altar, they actually claimed the land for God by faith. We learned in one sense that the geography was very important because the land was the first plank in God's promise to Abraham, and God always keeps his promises. The boundary, by the way, was quite extensive. The boundary was from the great river Euphrates, which is in the Fertile Crescent, to the great river of the Nile in Egypt. Now just think about that, if you know your geography a little bit. That's a tremendous landmass that was promised to Abraham. From a spiritual aspect, we learn, however, that geography was not important. Because God's promise to Abraham was not just about land, but more importantly about people. Nations of people, which would really uh, come from Abraham's son, not Isaac. Not Isaac, but from the Lord Jesus Christ. Great heir of Abraham. We learned that the Abrahamic covenant, indeed all the covenants, Made by God with the patriarchs, find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Abram's promised seed is Christ, Galatians 3, verse 16. Faith in God's promised salvation makes us Abraham's children. We learn that the number of spiritual heirs in Abraham's family consists of literally nations, plural. I may read it for you. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. and They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a king and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth, Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. The fourth identifying mark of Christ's or Abraham's family is that of a circumcised heart, wherein the fleshly lusts are cut out and discarded so that we can serve Christ in holiness, unencumbered by ongoing sin. In today's study, we see Abraham and Sarah Dabbling in the world. And as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word. Even God's saints, as we're going to learn today, can somehow get themselves in trouble by flirting with the world. And that applies to us as well. So I pray that we would take these lessons to heart. We're not of the world. We're in the world. Jesus says, yes, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. That is, we're not of the world's philosophy. We're not striving with the same lusts and desires and seeking the baubles that the world holds out to us or that Satan holds out to us. We are indeed in a foreign land, foreign to us because our home is in heaven. and We're striving to live as God would have us live. Be a witness to the watching world. I pray that that would be the case. Bless the truths of our study today. Enable us to learn and to be encouraged. In Jesus' name, amen. The bulletin contains a little poem that I wrote for this sermon today. For those that don't have a bulletin, that I'm listening on the radio, let me read it for you. It's called Dabble, Dabble. Dabble, dabble, as I travel, let me have a little fun. God will understand my battle. He knows I can become unstrung. Just a little trip to Egypt. What harm can it really do? I can trust my God to fix it. All the dangers to subdue. Life's no joy without some leisure. The world is full of gaiety. What's wrong with a little harmless pleasure if it sets my worries free? Consequences then or now, no time to think of these. <laughs> The only focus of my brow is Egypt's Nile breeze. You know, sometimes in scripture, God's people are actually told to go to Egypt. That's true. For example, to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Genesis 46, verse 3 and 4. Did you know that God actually told Jacob and his descendants to go to Egypt? Of Mary's husband, Joseph, the adoptive father of Jesus, an angel sent by God warned him in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt. Matthew 2, verse 13 and 14. So these are two clear accounts in which God actually approved of his people going to Egypt with the promise that God would be with them. That said, because Egypt stands for the world in scripture, Isaiah's warning is the norm. Here's the norm. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitudes of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or, keep, or seek help from the Lord, Isaiah 31, <coughs> verse 1. <coughs> so kind of depends on why you are going to Egypt. What are you going down there for? Is that where you expect your help is? Rather than in the Lord? Look at our text, which of these two scenarios applies to Abraham. So I ask the question, did he go to Egypt at the bidding of God, or did he go to Egypt for help with a problem? Verse 6, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. The text says, Abram went down to Egypt to live there. There's no directive from God to relocate to Egypt. Abraham did this on his own. God was silent on the matter. It was Abraham's decision. To him it was the logical and intelligent thing to do. I mean the farms in Canaan were drying up. Wheat, barley, oats were scarce commodities here. And getting more scarce by the day, but further south, just go a little further south, there's food aplenty. So obviously, Abram went to Egypt to get relief from the famine and to assure himself that there would be food stuff enough to sustain him and Sarah and his servants. Now, he could reason that severe circumstances call for severe solutions. You remember in later history, Naomi, wife of Elimelech, along with her two sons, went to Moab. Why? Answer, there was a famine in the land. Ruth 1, verse 1. What land? Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem means House of bread and praise. Yet in the ten years that Naomi journeyed in Moab, her husband died. Her two married sons died, leaving her destitute with two widowed daughters-in-law, one of whom was Ruth. At her return to Bethlehem, Naomi told the town folk, let me read it for you, don't call me Naomi, her name means pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and following. She says, I went away full. Really? What about the famine? Even a a famine-starved land is full with Jehovah as your God compared to living in pagan Moab. And Abram is about to learn the same lesson in Egypt. And notice how Naomi blamed God for her misfortunes in Moab. I went away full, she says, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's a sad saga indeed when we blame God for the hardships of our own poor decisions. But sinners always look for justification for their actions in order to ease their conscience. Even when such justification lays the blame... At the feet of God. To his credit, Abraham did not do this. But nonetheless, his little sworry in Egypt began a downward compromise of his faith in God. Let's look at this downward spiral for a few minutes. Number one, he left Bethel. Bethel means house of God. He left the house of God for Egypt. Egypt, a besieged land or place of fasting. Now, what kind of a trade off is that? God's house for a besieged house. God's house of blessing for a house of fasting. Some will say, should we? Well, should we not assess the real situation? I mean, Egypt had food. Canaan was scraping by. People need to eat, don't they? Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the devil came to him personally and tempted him in this very area of sustenance. Matthew records of Jesus, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah? (laughs) Let me tell you. I'd be hungry, too, if I hadn't eaten anything for 40 days, 40 nights. I can't get past 40 hours without needing some food to eat. So we should be able to understand here our Lord. I'm pretty sure that it was not 40 days for Abraham before he headed out for Egypt. He isn't starving at all. But Jesus is. Nothing has crossed his lips. Nothing has entered his stomach for more than a month. And yes, scientists have established the fact that a fast that long is survivable. So what does a hungry man do when the tempter comes along? When the tempter comes along and says, Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Matthew 4 verse 3. And I read that and I, I say that none of us, none of us would have been tempted by such a statement. Because none of us have the capacity to change stones into bread. In other words, temptations to be real pitfalls to destruction have to match our capabilities. A deaf man cannot be tempted to purchase these extremely expensive Bose earphones that the aficionados wear and buy for their stereo systems. But he might be tempted to slander a fellow worker to gain a promotion at work. Jesus was truly tempted because changing stones into bread was fully within his capabilities. So how did Jesus foil the devil's Evil intent. Was he hungry? Well, the Bible says, yeah, he was hungry. Could he change stones into bread? Well, yeah, as easily as he changed water into wine. Here's how Jesus answered. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word It comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4 verse 4. This is a quote from Deuteronomy. Wherein Moses is explaining to Israel. How God cared for them in their wilderness wanderings. A desert where food became scarce. Moses said he, God, humbled you. Causing you to hunger. And then feeding you with manna. Which neither you nor your fathers had known, teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And of course, faith in God's word meant that the Israelites had to get up every morning and harvest the manna before it evaporated in the sun. But Abraham had no such dilemma. His problem was more spiritual. Yes, verse 10 says that there was a famine in the land and that it was severe. But Abram's solution was to leave Bethel and head to Egypt. To leave the house of God for the besieged and fasting house of Egypt. Now, this is a different kind of famine. And in Abraham's case, it was self-inflicted. It is part of God's curse on people to withdraw himself and his word from those who are blessed but unthankful. Blessed but full of ingratitude. Amos puts it this way. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. not a famine of food or thirst for water, But a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east. Searching for the word of the Lord. But they will not find it. Amos 8 verse 11 and 12. But in Abram's case he withdrew from God. He became the perpetrator of his own troubles by allowing his fear of starvation to overcome his faith. This was his first step in the downward trek from trust in God. Secondly, Abraham left off his worship of God. Why would Bethel be named the house of God? Verse 8. Let me read it for you. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he left Bethel to go to Egypt. Can a person worship God while he's in the world? Some people think so. Many Christians try, but if you read ahead, you will discover that there's no altar in Egypt, built by Abraham. There's no calling of the, to the Lord in prayer while he's in Egypt. His whole life switched from honesty to deception, from being upright and above board in his dealings with Pharaoh, to being a liar and a deceiver, Which could have cost him his own life and that of Sarah. Oh, and it did cost him his reputation. And it blanketed him with shame before Pharaoh. His faith in God had been replaced by the fear of men. Look at verse 11 and following. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, "Ah, This is his wife. And then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maidservants, and camels. Genesis twelve, verse eleven and five. <laughs> Nothing like being the fair-haired boy in the court of the king, right? Wow. Pharaoh had taken in the liking to Sister Sarah as he understood her to be. And Pharaoh's a man on the move to make gorgeous Sarah part of his harem. She is so beautiful that Pharaoh, Pharaoh is willing, even anxious, to pay a king's ransom to obtain her. Abram is showered with sheep and cattle and breedable donkeys and maidservants and male servants and camels. Chapter 13, verse 2. Upon his return, we read, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. I would say it this way. Abraham was in the world packing it in, boy. Accumulating the stuff. With every silver and gold coin, he was selling Sarah and his faith on the auction block of self-preservation. He was buying favor with Pharaoh, loving the world while forfeiting the worship of God. The altar of worship at Bethel, like Judas' betrayal of Jesus, had been replaced by 30 pieces of silver. Jesus has taught us no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both. God And money, Matthew 6, verse 24. Can't serve both, Jesus says. Oh boy, but we try. We try. James warns us, you adulterous people, don't you know? That friendship with the world is hatred towards God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. Abram was walking pretty close to the thin line between God and friendship with the world. Pharaoh is an idolater like Abram's past associates. Nothing good can come from that. We think, well, I'm not really a friend of the world. I'm just just dabbling in it a little bit. I'm, I'm flirting. Flirting doesn't hurt, does it? Well, those who play with matches get burned, and if the fire doesn't get them, the smoke will they will come off smelling more like a pagan than like a saint. And this was Abram. He left off his worship of God to go to Egypt. I wonder if we we're doing the same thing sometimes. Sunday is our worship day, so set by Christ himself when he arose from the dead on the first day of the week, thus sanctifying the day as the church's day of worship. But the world makes no such acknowledgement. Industries are open today and running. Stores are open and selling. Movie theaters are open and entertaining. All these and more beckon the Christian community in competition for our three hours a week in which God calls us to worship him. The world is voracious. You think you're just dabbling in these things, exercising a measure of Christian liberty. But the world will gobble you up. What starts out as a little here, a little there will become a raging torrent to sweep you away from God and his people. It always begins little and then mushrooms into something bigger. Thirdly, Abram relied on his wits to keep himself and Sarah safe. Not good for Christians to do, but this is what he did. In case it has escaped you, the world is a dangerous place for believers and becoming more dangerous every day. Pharaoh was not a friend of the God of the Bible. He ruled Egypt and so what he wanted, he took. If he saw a beautiful woman whom he prized for his harem, he would simply conscript her. That is, bring her into the palace and take over whatever he wanted from her. This is why he lavished such wealth on Abram, Sarah's brother. He's paying a dowry so he can marry Sarah with Abram's blessing. Abraham anticipated something like this, but not this. I say that because upon coming to Egypt's border, Abram devised a plan to save his own neck, which was for Sarah to keep hidden her full identity, that she was actually married to Abram. Say instead that she's just Abraham's sister. Which, by the way, there's a bit of irony here, because guess what? Sarah was Abraham's sister, his half-sister. Genesis 20, verse 12. She is, his, here's his explanation. She is the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. I can just hear the devil. The father of lies. John 8, verse 44, saying to Abraham, clever move, my boy. Very clever. You have walked the thin line between truth and error brilliantly. Sarah will be protected, and the Egyptians will not be the wiser. But brethren, a half-truth is a whole lie in God's evaluation. We cannot play word games with people and expect to be exonerated. Abram likely thought that Sarah and he could live among the Egyptians unmolested, weathering out the famine, at which time they could just pack their belongings and discreetly slip back across the border into Palestine. And even though Sarah's stunning beauty might catch the eye of the Egyptian suitor, no one would have the wealth in time of famine to pay for Sarah's dowry. You see, Abraham was living by his wits, and his plan, it seemed to be working until Pharaoh stepped into the mix. (laughs) Oh, Pharaoh, here was a person of means, here was a person of power. Pharaoh had the wealth for a dowry, and what is more, the power to conscript beautiful Sarai without recourse for Abraham. Verse 15 says of Sarai, she was taken into his palace. Uh Uh-oh. What's Abraham going to do now? His ploy has backfired. Sister Sarah has drawn the attention of the king of Egypt. The king wants her. The king has taken her to his palace king is planning to marry her and make her a part of his family. How terrible. What is Abraham to do? I mean, what can he do? Think about this. By his wits, he has already done enough to seal Sarah's fate and his own. Brethren, it's no different than Israel's ploy in later years when they contracted with Pharaoh because he had so many horses and chariots. Let me read it for you. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord, But the Egyptians are men and not God. I'm still reading scripture. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. He who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. Isaiah 31, the first three verses. So living by faith in God and living by your own wits... Do not mix. They don't mix. What a mess Abraham has made for himself and Sarah. It's at this very juncture that God's providence intervenes. Providence. What's providence? What's the definition of providence? Well, providential originates from the Latin providentia, meaning divine interposition. And if it's capitalized, with a capital P, providence, when it's capitalized, stands for God, especially when conceived as omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with wise benevolence. Simply put, providence is God stepping in to help, stepping in to rescue, to direct events in such a way as to result in his will being accomplished through indirect means. We see this in operation in our decks. With Abram's sinful predicament, his ploy of using his wits to protect Sarah and preserve her and himself has failed he's lost his wife pharaoh had her removed to the women's quarters of the palace he plans to marry her but she's already married though pharaoh doesn't know that what can abram do he can do nothing he dug the hole yeah that's true but he cannot free himself or Sarah from the pit. He's overwhelmed. He's powerless. He's a drowning man swamped by the incompetence of his own cleverness. He forsook God, but here's the blessing: God has not forsaken him. Verse seventeen. But, I like the buts in scripture. They're important to note at times. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So, Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me? He said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say... She is my sister. So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her. Go, go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and with everything he had. Genesis 12, verse 17 and 5. I want you to note here three providential interventions by God. Number one, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. Good health, brethren, is the result of God's good graces to you. It has little to do with strong constitution, your genetic pool, appropriate diet, Sufficient exercise, all the things the world advocates. Forbes magazine years ago in April reported on the 34th London Marathon, wherein 36,000 runners participated on a Sunday. And they said in the post-race, there was the death of a 42-year-old man And he was the event's second death in three years. They've been running this marathon for years. Three years, second, two people have died running it. In North Carolina, two men died, age 31 and age 35, after collapsing at or near the end of a 13.1 mile run. was called a half marathon. A combined 12,500 runners participated in that Raleigh event, April of the year 2014. Now, stories like this abound, including those of some, some granny who lived to be age 103 and smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. Those who are fastidious about their health regimen, those who are utterly careless about such things, both are under the scrutiny of God of whom David declares, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, verse 16. God is the giver of life. He's the one who takes life. No one dies before their time. We hear people say that all the time. Oh, they died before their time. No, they don't. Good health, bad health, God ordains it all to remind us that we are not masters of our own destiny. We're not. Secondly, Pharaoh was awakened to Abram and Sarah's deception. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. what have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So I took her to be my wife. Notice that Pharaoh has made the connection between the diseases that his household was experiencing and Sarah being Abraham's wife. Maybe he asked her, I don't know. Notice, too, that he had the moral integrity to realize that he should not use his kingly authority to marry another man's wife. Pagans do, you know, have a sense of morality. It's built into them from, from God. Right and wrong. No right and wrong. You can read about it in, in Romans. And thirdly, there was providential intervention. Pharaoh's willingness to expel Abraham and Sarah without reprisals. Think about that. Verse 19 and 20, Now then here is your wife, take her, go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So Pharaoh did not demand that the dowry be repaid, that Abraham go without Sarah or without the wealth that he had acquired in Egypt. Now you have to remember how embarrassing this was for Pharaoh, as well as Abraham. He had been duped by a rancher from Canaan. Wow. Lesser men would have enacted a disciplinary judgment to teach Abram a lesson and to save face. But God was watching over Abram, even in his sin, even in his lack of faith. And Pharaoh said, just go. Take your wife and go. Oh, take, take all your belongings. Take everything you've acquired and go. Tremendous lesson here for us that We do not know the extent of God's providential intervention in our lives. But we should be thankful for it. You don't know it, but you should be thankful for it. Just as the Bible asserts, God is speaking. No eye has seen. No ear has heard. No mind has conceived. What God has prepared for those who love him. First Corinthians 2 verse 9. Now that's a statement about the future. You don't know what God has for your future. But he has been preparing things, right? So that's the first point. But God can also say, as he does say, It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms. But they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down to feed them. Hosea 11, verse 3 and 4. Not only what's coming in the future, But God is saying, you know, I've been working in the past and working in the present right along. You just didn't see it. You didn't know. You didn't know. But I was there. The psalmist tells us, love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 31, verse 23. Or again, my comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. Psalm 119, verse 15. And the most famous of the Psalms, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, verse 4. We cannot account for all of the providential interventions of God in our lives. They are secret, or they're untraceable, or they're clouded in mystery, but they are there. David reminds us, Praise the Lord, O my soul, he's talking to himself. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not uh, none of his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeemed your life from the pit, who crowned your life with love and compassion, who satisfies the desires, your desires with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will be harbor his anger forever. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him for he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103, the first 14 verses. So what I am saying to us today in closing is this. When you catch yourself dabbling in Egypt living by your wits rather than by faith, indulging the pleasures of sin, forsaking the worship of God, the message of Abraham, the message of Sarah to us is, get out, get back, not later, but now. Not after you have denied God and brought disrepute upon his name, but immediately, get out, get back. Not when, like a dog, you have to limp back with your ears drooped and your tail tucked between your legs, but before the evil days come, and you suffer great loss, remember the world's golden carrot, the world's golden carrot ends in the abyss. It ends in the abyss. God has something better planned for you and me if we will live by faith and trust him Egypt is no place for us to set up housekeeping Lord please give us the wisdom about this the world beckons to us all the time come be a part of us come you'll enjoy yourself come it's wonderful the pleasures of sin are great The carrot is dangled in front of us. Gold rings and silver. Pleasure, money, fortune, fame, popularity. It's all there for the taking. All we have to do is give up our faith in God. That's all. We just have to accept the world's philosophy and make it our own. Please preserve us, Lord. The devil comes with these enticing things. And the writer of Scripture says he presents himself as an angel of light. (laughs) As an angel of light. But he's really the prince of darkness. I pray, Lord, that we'll be able to see through the hypocrisy, through the deceptions. Keep us safe, keep us true to you, we pray. And thank you, Lord, for saving faith. Amen. Our closing hymn is 352 in the hymnal, 352. Let's stand together as we sing. And afterwards, uh, sit down. Jared has an announcement for us. Let's stand as we sing. Meeting to deal with something that's time sensitive. And I'm, I'm putting, is Sheila, you're taking the, the secretary. Do you have some paper, perchance? Can we get her some paper? Okay. <laughs>